Welcome to the Step by Pop Sugar, a podcast for and about unstoppable women, presented by Sorrel Footwear. I'm author and speaker Lovey Jai Jones. On last season, we heard inspiring stories about amazing women who stopped at nothing to achieve their dreams. This season, we're celebrating bold, brilliant women who stand up for what they believe in, fight for the greater good, and help the communities to take the next step forward. So join us. Our whole project with Black Lives Matter was not a message for white people. It's not an appeal to white people. It is a message to us about what it means to rehumanize ourselves, right? And if we can rehumanize ourselves, then we can have the basis from which to fight for ourselves. In July of 2013, George Zimmerman was acquitted on all charges for killing Trayvon Martin, a 17-year-old Black boy who was walking in his father's neighborhood. In response to this punch in the gut, Alicia Garza wrote a Facebook post that would resonate for many years after. It said, Black people, I love you, I love us, our lives matter. Alicia is one of the founding members of the Black Lives Matter movement. When she first wrote the phrase, she had no idea that in 2020, the BLM hashtag would get 3.7 million posts every single day. But activism is about more than a hashtag, and Alicia knows better than most. Beyond being one of the founding voices of the BLM movement, she's a special projects director for the National Domestic Workers Alliance. She's also the principal of the Black Futures Lab, which works to mobilize Black communities to make political change. And along with her BLM co-founders, she was recently featured in Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in 2020. Alicia, welcome to The Step. I am such a fan and I have such deep respect for your work. Oh, the fandom is mutual. And I even have your book on my bookshelf, which was yes. amaze. And I'm super stoked we get to have this conversation. Oh my goodness. You are known in this world as this activist because you co-founded Black Lives Matter, but I'm always interested about the beginning. Mm. How, what was little Alicia like and how did you become this giant? Well, I think I'm still growing, but thank you. You know, I started activism at 12 years old. I got involved in a fight in my school district. There was a proposal on the table to provide contraception in school nurses' offices. Mm -hmm. And this was at a time when there was all of this hoopla about teen pregnancy being this epidemic here in the United States that had to be addressed. At the same time, we had a political administration that came into power actually on a platform of family values. And part of what that meant was restricting funding for family planning services, including abortion, we got the global gag rule that year, which said that nobody could get federal funding if they even talked about abortion internationally. Wow. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we also got a wave of uh, proposals for abstinence-only education in schools. So it seemed kind of weird to me as a 12-year-old. My friends were already having sex, but without the tools they needed to be safe. It seemed weird to me to be like up in arms about teen pregnancy and not really doing anything about it except telling people to not have sex. Which, you know, which they you were exactly. You can't tell young people not to do stuff. That's the first thing you do. <laughs> so right. I got super involved in that fight. And actually, we won. Um, we got contraception in school nurses offices. And that kind of awakened something in me coming together with other people who care about the things you care about, making a plan and executing on that plan is kind of addictive. So it started at 12 and it keeps going today. 
Wow. So what role did you play at 12? What did you learn in that first campaign? Well, one thing I learned was how to use the power of media to make your point. Hmm. So I did. I wrote articles about being a young person and having people talk about you without you. Mm. I spoke at meetings where we talked about, you know, the fact that young people were already making decisions, but yet making decisions without the tools we needed to be safe. And I kept going, actually. I became a peer advocate, which back in those days just kind of meant somebody who helped teach my peers about how to be safe and really taught my peers about our bodies. So much of what my friends were learning about sex, they were learning from their older siblings or television or even porn. And we all know that all those things are deeply distorted in a lot of ways, including that they don't teach you how to be safe and how to protect yourself, how to, you know, have pleasure, all these different things that are important for people to know. And I also learned, though, through that process that, you know, there's one thing that is advocacy, where you speak on behalf of other people, Mm -hmm. but there's a whole other process where you can be a part of the process that helps people speak for themselves. And so that is actually kind of my trajectory. It wasn't until college that I learned that kind of methodology, which was less like lawyerish, right? And more community-based. So when you got to college, what was your major? Anthropology and sociology. Mm, what made you pick those? I love people and I find culture very, very fascinating. And that was the way that I saw that I could dive into the study of people and how we work and how culture shapes us and we shape it. And my mom wasn't that happy with that. She was like, what the hell are you going to do with a sociology degree? (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't think about that. I was like, I don't know. I just, this is what I'm interested in. But I I think I have found it actually incredibly helpful in the work I do now. When do you think was the first time you actually used the word activist to describe yourself? You know, I rarely use the word activist to describe myself. I mostly Mm. use the word organizer. And Mm. I think the first time was when I started learning how to organize back in the early 2000s. I actually went through a training program that taught us in real time how to build campaigns and how to build community at the same time. And so I learned to be an organizer on the streets of East and West Oakland, deepened my practice in Bayview Hunters Point, which is in the Southeast section of San Francisco for about a decade. And I think all through that time, I I realized, yes, this is what I do. I work to bring people together to realize our own power, to understand the world around us, why it works the way it does, and to come up with a plan for how to change it and execute that plan. That's a great point. And I want to dig deeper. What do you think is the difference between organizer and activist? And why do you choose organizer over activist? I mean, I think organizing and activism are complementary, but they're not Mm -hmm. synonymous. So Mm -hmm. I think the difference between them is I see an activist more as an individual. This is somebody who has strong and bold opinions about how the world works and what they want to see, right? Most people who come into organizing come through activism. But organizing is a different process. Organizing is a process that involves community, a community of impacted people. Uh, It involves building relationships and mobilizing those relationships towards change. And I think 
organizing is also about accountability. So it's about being in accountable relationship to others. And mm. I think that can happen through an organization. It can happen through a campaign. But what it means is that one person doesn't unilaterally make decisions for everybody, that everybody comes together to figure out what they're going to do, what their role is going to be, and how to make progress towards the ultimate goal. That's how I see the difference between the two. I love that. And that's so succinct. So one is more community decision driven. One is more kind of a leader head. That's right. And I think sometimes organizing is more geared towards building and changing power. Whereas mm. I think activism can be really about having strong opinions, which is good, or taking individual action, right? Um, you know, I have a family member who's definitely an activist. She's so active around all kinds of issues that she cares about. Sometimes that's in a group and sometimes it's not. It's like her own personal crusade. Uh, you know, she recently sent me a picture of herself where she's where every time she goes out of the house for walks or things like that, she wears a cardboard sign that says vote. That is an mm -hmm. example to me mm -hmm. of an activist, right? You're making bold statements, maybe getting people to think, but it may not be helping people better understand how they can be a part of a long-term process for change mm -hmm. or even how they can be a part of a movement. Mm, that's good. There's a lot of activists. A lot. There's a and lot that's of a good activists. thing. That's a yeah. good thing. But we definitely need more organizers. <laughs> yes. that Because everybody is valid. But that's a great point. I, I've never actually heard it put in those two very clear terms of the difference. People just use it interchangeably. But that's a that's great right. way to put it. That's right. That's right. So you, you as an organizer, your work is clear. And what you just said is clearly put in practice. In, in what you do, you as a co-founder of a few organizations, a few projects, a few initiatives, the one that you are most known for is you are one of the three co-founders of Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. That's right. The Black Lives Matter Global Network. So there's a difference between the hashtag and the global network. We got to make that super clear because I think people use them um, interchangeably, but they're not the same. Oh, yeah. You told us a thousand times, how yes. did Black Lives Matter, the global network, come to be? Well, the global network really started from a hashtag, was built out into a series of social media pages, and those were designed to connect people online who were outraged about the murder of Trayvon Martin and the subsequent acquittal of George Zimmerman in his mm -hmm. murder. Connecting those people and getting them to do more than like or retweet or share, right? Getting them to actually come together offline and take action together. I think the Black Lives Matter Global Network really is born out of Ferguson. When Mike Brown was killed in 2014, uh, there certainly was a movement in Ferguson that erupted. And many in that movement were using the phrase Black Lives Matter uh, that Patrice and Opal and I had, had coined, right? years prior, a year prior. We organized, Patrice and Darnell Moore in particular, organized a freedom ride to Ferguson where there were Black journalists and storytellers, Black doctors, Black lawyers, Black organizers, teachers who converged from, I believe, 10 states and Canada and converged on Ferguson to help tell Black-centered stories about what was happening there, 
I think you'll remember that at the time, you know, mainstream networks like CNN and others were broadcasting all of these images that gave people a particular perception of what was happening there, none of which was from the perception of folks who were actually protesting. During that weekend, folks were transformed and people said, you know, it's great that we've come here to bear witness, to help tell new stories about what's happening here. But at the end of the day, we're not involved in disaster tourism, right? Mm. We have what's happening in Ferguson is happening in our communities all around the country, and we have a responsibility to organize. And so people started to agitate to build chapters of Black Lives Matter. And that's really where the global network comes from. What do you think has happened in the last five years that gives you some type of joy in this work with mm. Black Lives Matter? Mm-hmm. You know, my favorite stories are the ones that I hear every day from people who say, thank you for giving us language for how to love ourselves again. Mm. And that brings me deep, deep joy especially when, you know, on the other side of things, my inboxes, <laughs> my DMs Shambles. Are, uh, a mess. Shambles. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A tsunami hit my mentions. <laughs> Shambles. I understand. Yeah. I mean, amidst all the conspiracy theories and the death threats and all the things, it's those messages that I get from people that make it worth it. So, our whole project with Black Lives Matter was not a message for white people. It's not an appeal to white people. It is a message to us about what it means to rehumanize ourselves, right? And if we can rehumanize ourselves, then we can have the basis from which to fight for ourselves, the dignity from which to fight for ourselves. You know, so much of the conversation after Trayvon was murdered and subsequently with the trial, I mean, you'll even remember, right? The trial was called the Trayvon Martin trial when Trayvon was an on trial. Right. He was dead, right? Right. And there were all these people saying things like, this is awful, this is terrible, but that's why we need our kids to get an education. That's why we need our kids to pull their pants up. That's why our kids shouldn't wear hoodies. They should look presentable so that people won't kill them. And the fact of the matter is, right, it doesn't matter if you wear your pants around your ankles or your pants around your waist. You both things deserve life, right? And if we can adopt that mindset ourselves, then it puts us in a better position to try and change not just the policies, but the practices that tell us that, Um, these systems are our own fault as opposed to things that were created and designed to keep us away from having power and dignity. Those are the respectability of it all that people think Mm -hmm. you can dress your way into anti-racism. You can dress Mm -hmm. your way. You can, you can uncuss your way into liberation is one of the things that hold us back. And I think one of the conversations that Black Lives Matter brought to the forefront is the idea that Trayvon, even if he was armed, still did not deserve to die. That's right. Because we don't get to decide who lives or dies just based on what they look like. That's right. For you in this work, how do you how have you seen the conversation change and evolve in these five years? I mean, it's been incredible, really. I, I think that, you know, on the one hand, what feels so important to just say is that 
I think what was so mind-blowing about Trayvon's case was that he literally was just going to the store Mm -hmm. to get snacks during a break in a sports game. And the spin that happened around him was that somehow he was this gorilla of a child that almost overcame a grown man Mm -hmm. three times his size. And that Mm -hmm. tells you a lot, right, about how Black people are seen in this country. We're seen as violent and we're seen as inherently criminal. And I think over the last five years, that still is true. But there is also a revival of what, you know, my parents would describe, right, as the Black is Beautiful movement of the 70s. There is a revival of people reclaiming our identities in a way that we shape and that are not shaped for us by other people. I think there's also a deepening of who is Black in this country, um, what is Blackness around the world, understanding that everything Black is not African American, right? Mm-hmm. And people, I think, are getting better at not being uh, using that interchangeably, right? Yeah. Um, African American means something very specific. Black is way more all encompassing, right? So there's been an opportunity, I think, for people to re educate themselves about our diaspora. And then I also feel like we're starting to have some important reckonings around the criminal system. Mm-hmm. And more and more people are starting to realize that this system is working exactly as it's been designed and that our longing, right, for accountability or our longing for justice won't be realized through the way that things are organized right now. That's why we don't even call it a criminal justice system anymore because it is literally a system designed to create people as criminals, right, and to attach those labels to them for the rest of their lives. It's a system that disposes of human beings and locks them away in cages. But it's also Mm. a system that does not actually keep us safe and that does not bring justice. If there was justice, so many more people would be alive who are not today. If there was justice, right, people wouldn't be criminalized for being poor or being black or defending themselves. So it, it forces us to actually have a new conversation about what is safety, What are the kinds of investments that we need to make in our communities so that we can live harmoniously? And I don't think we've fully figured out those answers yet, but I definitely think it's a different conversation than we were having five years ago. Absolutely. I've seen people's language change in a way that people weren't speaking five years ago. Like folks have more of the words to put to what they're feeling what we're fighting. And that is largely a part of you all creating this movement. I'm sure you didn't realize it was going to be a movement when you created it, but it became such like all beautiful things should. Um, How do you think you as a leader have changed in the last five years? You know, I always say that this movement, it didn't grow me up because I I was kind of grown although I'm more grown than I was then. (laughs) But I've been doing this work for a long time. Black Lives Matter is not the start of my um, organizing trajectory. And so I would say that the biggest change or the biggest thing I've learned is how to have a tough skin, but how to still have a soft heart. Mm. So 
there's a lot of stuff going on out in the world and people throw all kinds of barbs and sometimes it's your own homies, you know, or the mm. people who are closest to you. So I've learned just to not take that stuff personally and also not to absorb it because other people's opinions of you are really none of your business. Fast. At the same time, that kind of stuff used to break my heart in the kind of way where I just didn't want to connect with anyone. And it's been a, a long and hard practice over the last seven years to be able to keep a soft heart in the midst of haterism and shade and also just like deep pain. I mean, what's happening around us is not okay. Right. And it's easy to try to check out or to get really cynical. But a soft heart allows us to feel every single time something happens, like the the lack of accountability in Breonna Taylor's murder, like a child being murdered by a vigilante who believed that this kid did not belong in his own community, like being able to say at the same time that I know that the criminal system is never going to deliver justice and accountability the way it's designed, to still want to fight for that, to still mm. want to fight for what I think we deserve, which is one, to stay alive, but B, for there to be accountability when harm happens. So that requires just tapping into that human piece of us that is vulnerable and that itself wants protection, right? So that that is my my biggest lesson and I think the one that I have to come back to every single day. I love that. That's sign that is so important. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to ask you about what brings you joy in this time. Your outfit is about more than looking good. That's especially true of your shoes. Your footwear should be as unstoppable as you are, which is why Sorel Footwear has designed powerful shoes for those who get things done. From sneakers that move you around town to boots made for weathering any city storm or your next night out. Sorrel Footwear is made to power you forward. You are doing some deep work. And like you said, you know, some days your inbox are in shambles, mm. I'm sure. And mm. you're dealing with things that you never even can tell us just for security purposes, right? That's so right. that's right. how are you keeping your joy? How are you dealing Especially, I mean, the world is also on fire on top of the rest of the stuff. <laughs> yeah, especially in my state. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I have some practices that I that keep me relatively sane. I think it's good to not be all the way sane. But <laughs> right, right, right. We gotta have some some marbles loose. Just just exactly. lose. Just have some marbles loose because sometimes you gotta let people have it. That's exactly right, and you gotta be able to have the space to do it. So, look, I, when the pandemic really kind of hit and grew, I got a Peloton bike. I splurged on a Peloton bike. Yes. And it's probably the best thing to happen to me in this pandemic because I still get to get that good sweat that you just sometimes need. And right. honestly, the first couple of weeks when I was using it, there were times when I would like break down crying on the bike. And a lot of that is just like moving stuff through your body. We work so much from our heads and all this stuff is being absorbed in us. And so when you move, it actually breaks apart a little bit and it makes more space. Mm. So I've had plenty of weird crying sessions on the bike. You know, you're I'm, not the only person who's told me that. Okay, like, good. 
<laughs> there are people. No, no, you're not the only person who said like they've gone on a Peloton ride and basically wept yeah. while on it. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I'm like deep. I hate group activities like that. <laughs> they have a whole, you know, they have a whole Peloton ethos and it's not really my thing, but I'm into it. I'd be on the bike doing V for victory and the whole thing. I'm just like about it, <laughs> you know, bringing hands to heart chakra, like all that stuff. And I'm in the Bay. So, you know, I'm prone to hippie stuff, but anywho, it reminds me to not be so damn serious. <laughs> so, mm, that's, that's how I'm real. taking care of myself. Also, um, just my own spiritual practice, you know, there's something really grounding about taking time to reflect every day, to be clear about what your intentions are, to be clear about what your mistakes have been, and yeah. to imagine, right, what what it is that you want for your future. So that is a practice that I'm enjoying. I really tried gardening, and so that's its own thing. But I will tell you, tequila takes care of me, too. <laughs> when all the healthy stuff fails, child, I'm like, okay, somebody grab a piece of ice because it's on. <laughs> a good drink. Yes, exactly. understood. Exactly. Straight, no chaser. And only one piece of ice just to open it up a little bit. Love it. Are you brown liquor, clear liquor woman? Depends what, on the doing? season. It depends on the mm. season. So... Summertime and most of spring, I do clear liquor. But then when you get that fall and winter, I definitely start getting back into my brown liquor. Nice. You know, yeah, I just got my hair yeah. colored because I feel like in the fall, you got to switch things up a little bit. Yes, I love that. I love that. Yeah. I mean, we need su we need anything we can get our hands on right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> be about it. If you do it, a new hairdo, new hair color, whatever it is, just shake it up a little bit. We need it. Absolutely. So I'm sure you've been told a thousand times that you can't do something. Oh, all the time. You know, somebody being like, no, or no, you can't even do it. <laughs> Tell me about a time. And how do you continue to overcome those moments? Well, I mean, I'll use a real relevant example. I mean, when we started Black Lives Matter in 2013, people would tell us that this was a message that was going to turn people off. You can't say Black Lives Matter. You should say Black Lives Matter too. Or you should say Black and Brown Lives Matter. You should say People of Color Lives Matter or whatever. I'm so glad we didn't change it. Amen. So Amen. Glad we didn't change it. If people would tell us that, I'd be like, okay, watch us, right? So that's an example of when people have tried to tell me no and it drives me. I'm like, oh, you think I can't? Check this out. Now I'm just going to get joy out of showing you that I yes. can and will. <laughs> yes, out of proving you wrong. You know? <laughs> Don't you love the moments where somebody tell you you can't and then you did it and then you have to see them again? And now yes. they got to deal with what you did? Correct, yes. correct. And I, I I, am petty, so I will remind you. I'll remind yeah. you. I'll be like, do you remember? You remember how you told me we couldn't do it? Check it out. So what do you think about how we did it, though? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, the way my petty set up, that's me all day. I remember an editor who actually told me that my book was too risky. So uh, when my book came out and ended up number five on the Times list. Uh, hello? Number Listen, five, too. Not number, number 26. Five. Okay, number, number five. five. Thank you. The last time I saw them, you know they come up to me and apologize to me. And I, I reveled in it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, it always comes back around full circle, my friend. <laughs> does it not? And it you does. are coming out the book very soon called The Purpose of Power, How We Come Together When We Fall Apart. That's right. That's right. The Why book was is now out. the time? Yes. Well, honestly, so 
much respect, first of all. Authorship is not oh, a game. No, it's ma'am. not a game. <laughs> it's not a game. And I tell people, I mean, much respect also to like ghost writers and supportive writers and all that. I, I dreamt about it. But I'm also like weirdly technical about my own writing. So I was like, no, I want to say where the periods go. And I yes. have a way that I yes. say things and I don't want to go through the process of editing you. I'd rather edit myself. So, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I this book is three years in the making. Um, in the middle of it, my mom died. Um, mm. And so I wasn't even sure that I was going to finish this book. But I'm really wow. glad that I did. The book is out October 20th, and it is part memoir and part organizing lessons for mm-hmm. how we build the kinds of movements that can succeed. And it's not a you know self-help book. It's not a how-to. It's literally an a compilation of lessons that I've learned, am learning, am unlearning, I'm not totally sure about, but I'm working it out. And the whole point here is to help us develop a practice together of how we figure it out, right? So I'm really glad that this book is here. And it's a book that I wish I had as a young organizer or as somebody just coming into social change work. It is not the story of Black Lives Matter. And I hate to disappoint people. People wanted me to write that book. They're like, write the book about Black Lives Matter. I was like, I could. Or I could write the book about how we build movements like Black Lives Matter because Black Lives Matter can't do it all. Contrary to popular opinion, you know, I wonder if your their work. Yeah, I wonder if your inboxes are like this too. If you'd be like, "What Black Lives Matter need to be doing?" I'd be like, "You know what? Thank you for that suggestion, and you should do that. You should do that. What makes you start the thing that you would think I should be doing? You do that. Yes, yes. So." Yes, but also, you know, one of the points I make in the book, almost about why this isn't the story of Black Lives Matter, is that, you know, one of the things that's interesting about movements is that they start where you come into it. And Mm. so for me, Patrice and Opal and I come in to this part of the movement, not just in 2013, each of us had been organizers for a while before we helped to create this thing. For others, their entry point was Ferguson. For mm. others, their entry point was Oscar Grant. For others, it was Amadou Diallo, right? Like movements are long. And this movement, right, began the moment that the first enslaved people stepped foot on this mm. land. So it's not the story of Black Lives Matter. It is a Black Lives Matter story, and I hope mm. there will be many, 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 many more. So that's the book, and people can get it everywhere you get your books, but Obvi, I prefer you get it at an independent bookseller. If you're in the Bay, hit up Marcus Books and tell him, please put this on pre-order for me, but it's out October 20th. Oh my goodness. It is a book of reflections of your stories, your lessons, your thoughts, and it is a book that everyone should go pick up. So if you listen Absolutely. to this, I am expecting you yes. to go buy The Purpose of Power. And yes, we are using peer pressure. Thank you. Yes. I have no qualms about it. Okay. I feel no <laughs> guilt about it. Okay. Because I think the people whose stories need to be amplified and elevated are often the ones who are not in the room. And even though you are now a person of privilege, 
you worked your way to that privilege. And mm. I think you deserve whatever type of awards, the trophies, the access, because mm. you are using it for the greater good. Thank you. I appreciate is- that. I appreciate that. And, you know, these honors that we get are really honors for every single one of us who has taken a step to make Black Lives Matter. So, you know, there's nothing that we do that isn't lifted by this village. So I'm deeply appreciative of that. Okay, so now it is time for our signature segment called Follow My Lead. Yes, let's go. So (laughs) this is something we do with every guest. Uh-huh. And I will give you a sentence and you finish it. Ooh, okay. Ready, ready, ready. Okay. Yeah, I had to sit up in my seat. All right, let's do this. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I feel my strongest when? Mm, I feel my strongest when I'm fully present. When I'm fully present. Even if I don't know what I'm doing. If I'm fully present, I feel yes. my strongest. Yes. Okay. I want to step up when? When I see somebody being messed with in a way that they shouldn't be, or when I see somebody underestimating what I can or can't do. When I feel like I can't, I... Definitely do. (laughs) Yes! I put on my big girl pants and go. Really and truly. I love that. So what makes your community unstoppable? Our vision, our vision, that's what makes my community unstoppable. So what advice would you give to those who want to take the step forward for their communities? Hmm. It's okay to be scared. It's okay to not know what you're doing. It's okay to make mistakes. But what it's not okay to do is not take action. Mm. Yes. I think people are really afraid of doing because they're afraid of failing. Yep. Yep. So then well, you're going to fail. <laughs> Facts. You will fail. I fail all the time. <laughs> no. All but the people time. Always, like, people, I always say that try, don't choose failure in advance yeah. by not yeah. doing it. Facts. Facts. So. I love that. I love that phrase. Don't choose failure in advance. Don't do I it. I love that. Yeah. Just you're going to mess up. That's the whole point. That's how you learn how to do things. I mean, if you ever tried to learn a different language, like it's not like you were a master the first three days you started learning it, you made mistakes. You might've fell off in the process of learning and had to go all the way back to the beginning, but it takes practice, right? And so does building the world that we want. It takes practice. And I was in conversation with this brother, Eric Liu, yesterday, and I just want to, from Citizen University, and I want to shout him out. He said something that was so profound. He said, power is a practice. And Mm. anything that we practice becomes a habit, right? Mm. So I think that the only way that we get to change, right, is by practicing the world that we want to be living in. And knowing that it doesn't exist yet. So obvi, you go make mistakes, but just get back on and keep writing. Oh, I love that. Power is practice. Mm-hmm. 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 Oh my goodness. Ah, see the gems, the gems so yes. much. Yes. I, I'm so here for your wisdom, for your existence. And I, again, I, I am constantly speaking to people who I am acutely aware that history is going to never forget, like Mm. whose names will be etched in the fabrics 
of whatever history books look like in 40, 50, 60, 70 years. And mm. I'm honored to share this space with you. Mm, I love this. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for being engaged with me and in conversation with me. I learned a lot in this conversation too. So thank you for the collabo. Anytime, yo. Anytime. Thank you for listening to The Step by Pop Sugar. A huge shout out to Sorel, making powerful footwear for powerful people. You can find The Step by Pop Sugar at popsugar.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe, share with your friends, and tune in next week.